As the kiddos go out to age-appropriate teaching, we are thankful to God for them, for the workers that labor to give the gospel to our kids. And I invite you now as we continue in our series on the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As we begin uh, our time today, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. So I encourage you to turn there. And as you're turning there, we will begin reading in Exodus 3, but the chunk of our passage today is Exodus 5 through 15. So you can turn initially to Exodus 3, verses 13 through 21. As you're turning there, I just want to uh, remind you that uh, we have a worship night coming up on November the 10th at 7 p.m., Yes, that's right. And uh, that worship night is going to be led by our teenagers, but it's not only for teenagers. It's for anyone who wants to come out and just sing praises to our God and enjoy his presence through song. We invite you out November the 10th at 7 p.m. at the church property. And uh, we will be spending some time. It'll be outside, so bring chairs and blankets, but feel free bring a friend, snacks, uh, and drinks will be provided. We would love for you to be there if you can, November 10th, 7 p.m. Now, in practice for um, this singing moment, I also wanted to say that I'm wearing my shirt in honor of a dear friend. You might look at my shirt and say, that doesn't make much sense. Well, it's it's a black shirt, and it is because when someone turns 50, Many times you wear dark colors as a sense of grieving or mourning. Well, I'm not grieving and mourning. I'm celebrating my dear brother, Pastor Travis Williams, is 50 years old today. So let's sing together. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. He's in the back. Happy birthday, dear Pastor Travis. Happy birthday to you. Love you, brother. We've had a lot of birthdays coming up. Pastor Ron's yours was last week. Heather's uh, was yesterday. But turning 50 on a Sunday, I felt it was necessary to acknowledge and to sing. So, brother, we're thankful for you. Thankful for all the years of ministry together and your dear friendship. So, happy birthday. Let's look at Exodus chapter 3. Verses 13 through 21, I want to read, and as I read, you'll see where some of the points of today come from, and then I will pray. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, the word of God says this, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? So do you understand the context? God is asking Moses to go to Pharaoh and be his representative to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. And Moses says, I can't do this. And so, objection after objection come. This is one of the initial ones. It says, the God of your fathers has sent me to them. And they ask me, if the people of Israel ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. If you have all caps, L-O-R-D, it means Yahweh. It's the covenant word for God. So he's saying, my name, tell them that Yahweh, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land. A land where all the enemies were, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Today we're going to be talking about the beauty of the name of God. And in this first section you see his promises display his beauty. But let's keep reading. When you look at Exodus 3, verse 18. The passage goes on and says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go up a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. The second main point of today is that his justice and his mercy display the beauty of his name. And finally, what passage we read at the beginning, this is what ends this entire section, Exodus 5 to 15. In Exodus 15, we read these words. After the people have been delivered out of Egypt, Moses sings a song with the people, and he says this. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my salvation, my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. The question is, how do they go from enslavement to freedom? And this is the last point that we will look at. His sacrificial salvation displays the beauty of his name. Three main ideas today in Exodus 5 through 15. His promises display the beauty of his name. His justice and mercy display the beauty of his name. And his sacrificial salvation displays the beauty of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. There is no rival to you. There is no equal. Yours is the name that is above every name. 
We know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, to the glory of God our Father, Jesus is our King. Father, right now we ask that you would come and meet us. That your presence would be powerful in this moment. And that God, we would draw nearer to you, receive your love and walk in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Names mean something. They do, don't they? Some of you have your names chosen because they have a certain meaning. Names mean something. I remember when I was a little kid, if I ever heard my full name, it meant I was in severe trouble. Christopher Sean Cordell, some of you might not even know. My first name is Christopher. I go by my middle name. I still almost curse my parents for calling me by my middle name. Because everybody else wants to know my first name. That's Christopher. You don't know who Christopher is. I barely know who Christopher is. But I'm Christopher Sean Cordell. And so when I'm in trouble, Christopher Sean Cordell, I knew I was, should dig a grave. Uh, it's coming. Names are important. People call me many things. Most of them good. Here's what I mean. My kids. They can call me daddy. Dad. It's a term of intimacy and connection. Some people call their fathers Papa. But if somebody called their dad by their first name, hey, Sean, what would that communicate? It would communicate two things to me. It would communicate some distance and some disrespect. <laughs> hey, Sean, no, 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 no. I'm your dad. Names communicate something, don't they? They have a meaning attached to them. My wife has many names for me. She calls me Sweetie, Honey, The Hubbers, Shawanda. All these are she, she's phenomenal at names. Literally, I get called those all the time, and I answer to all of them pretty quickly. She's really good at names. And they communicate this sense of intimacy and friendship, a closeness. If she ever dresses me as Sean, which is very rarely, it communicates we're in a cold season, even if it's in the dead of summer. It's like there's this little bit of distance here. And if she ever awkwardly just started calling me as a title husband, hey husband, how are you? That would communicate not only weird, but it would communicate extreme distance. Names communicate something. They not only communicate about a relationship, but they also communicate character. If you say someone's name, then you think of things attached to their name. If I say LeBron James or Taylor Swift or Beyonce or Jeff Bezos or a list of all kinds of names you might hear in the news, you attach certain meanings to their name. Wealth, fame, they can sing, they're good at a craft. They manage a business well. You think of those things just by me saying their name. Name connects with character. So when someone says, I'm making a name for myself, it doesn't just mean that people know my name. It means that there's some meaning attached to that name. 
It can mean, when you think of their name, that they're mean or that they're kind. That they're generous or that they're stingy. They're hardworking or they're lazy. They're present or they're absent. But something about their character is attached. The same with God. Just try it out. Just in a crowd of people, start talking about Jesus. What happens? People get really uncomfortable. Because they have meaning attached to his name. Some of it is tender and affectionate. You talk about Jesus in front of me, I love Jesus. You talk about Jesus in front of others, he's the divisive character. Should be distanced from. You can't say that. Names create opinions, convictions, affection. And sadly, when God is brought up or Jesus is brought up, it can create disdain or distance. But God is about one thing. He wants the world to know his name. He wants the world to know that when Jesus is said, it is loaded with all the fullness of his grace and his mercy and his love and his justice and his steadfastness and his patience, his kindness, his tenderness, his sacrificial nature. He wants all of that to be known by all the world. And one day it will. But what we see in the book of Exodus, right here in this moment, this moment in the scriptures is the most often referred to event and moment in the text of all other moments other than the cross. And the cross is even echoing back to this moment right here. When the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel, enslaved by those in Egypt, are delivered and rescued. It's a picture of our God. And every bit of it is so that God's name would be known. He's about his name. And so, one of the many objections that Moses has is, well, if the people of Israel ask me what your name is, what should I tell them? It just admits that over all these years, they have grown less and less familiar with his name. And he says, tell them that I am is here. As Pastor Runger did an amazing job last week, sharing with us, I am is here. There is no beginning in me. That's the God that's here. There is no end in me. I always will be. I always am. I always exist. I will sustain you. I can be depended upon. All your satisfaction is found in me. He says, Moses, tell them I'm here. But because of the people's later rebellion, God says to Moses, Moses, you have to go and you have to go and tell them, tell them that I am he. But the people of Israel continued to rebel even far after the Exodus. So much so that right before Exodus 33, God says, you can go ahead, but I'm not going with you. One of the most tragic words in all the world that you could hear. Go ahead and do your own thing, but I'm not going with you. Moses said, that can't happen. You've got to go with me. That's what makes us distinct is that you're with me. 
And so God says this in Exodus 33, one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible where God describes his name. And the Lord says to Moses, Exodus 33, 17, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your name, he's saying. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Right there, you need to mark these words. What is his name? It's his goodness. It's his goodness. And it's his goodness that is to be proclaimed. And then he goes on to say, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. He wants you to know he's characterized by mercy and by grace, but he's also characterized by the freedom to give it as he sees fit. Sovereign freedom. This is his name, goodness, grace, mercy, freedom. And then he goes on in Exodus 34, 5 to 8. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh, And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, and here's his name. What's God's name? What's his character? What's his essence? What should I remember when days are hard? What should I remember when I feel like everything is crumbling around me? Remember his name. This is his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in enduring or steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps his steadfast love for thousands. There's no limits to his steadfast love. He forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins, but he's also just. He by no means clears the guilty and he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children for third and fourth generations. What did Moses do when he heard this name? He bowed down and worshiped. The name of our God is meant to bring comfort, consolation, encouragement, and peace, and rest. You're meant to trust His character. When my family and I go to the beach, we bought one of these tent-type things that are made of like spandex material. I don't know if you've seen them, but you... Take them, and at the four corners, they have these tiny little pouches. The pouches are about as, they look to be about as big as my hand. And you're supposed to shove sand into them to anchor this tent. And then you put these poles up in this thing. I don't know if you've seen these things, but it's really stretchy. And so you look at this, and it's like, how is the sand going to get into this little tiny pouch and hold down this tent so it's not blown away by all this strong wind that's coming off of the beach? But when you start shoving the sand in there, this little tiny pouch starts doing this. And it just keeps doing this. And literally, by the time you've shoved all this sand in there, I can barely pick it up and move it. Because it's so stinking heavy. This is the image of what God wants the people of Israel to carry around with them. The world says his name is small. And what he keeps doing is he keeps saying, no, my name is great, even greater than you could imagine. And he starts shoving stuff in and he's like, my name is goodness. And he shoves it in. 
My name is grace, and he shoves it in. My name is mercy, and he shoves it in. And I am merciful to whom I will be merciful, and gracious to whom I will be gracious. I am sovereign and free, and he shoves it in. And the bag just keeps getting bigger, and it doesn't break. And he keeps saying, my name is compassion. My name is mercy. My name is slow to anger and he keeps shoving it in. It keeps growing, but it does not break. He wants the people to know his name because his name is what anchors them in when the winds blow. His name is what comforts you in your affliction and you must know his name. It's not just he wants a reputation. He wants a reputation because he is the source of your life. He is the source of your peace. And apart from him, you can do nothing. And so he's after the glory of his name because he's due glory. And his name is the only thing that will satisfy you. And so, dear friends, what he said throughout the scriptures that we are reading today as we entered three and four, He said, I will deliver you. I will take care of you. And if you remember chapters 3 and 4 in Exodus, we began to hear God making promises, how his promises display the beauty of his name. After Moses had killed a man, trying to get justice his own way, rather than trusting justice to God's way, Moses is told, after 40 years of being a shepherd, Moses, you're going to go and represent me to Pharaoh. You're going to be the one that helps deliver the people out of Egypt. And he says, no way. Objection after objection after objection. I can't do this. But God says, you will go as my representative and Aaron as his mouthpiece. Because here's the promise. I will bring my people out of their affliction." And so Moses does. He goes back to Egypt. God warns him that Pharaoh will not let the people go. And when he doesn't let the people go, here's what he says is going to happen. Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 30 or 23. God tells Moses, then you will say to Pharaoh, when he won't let the people go, you'll say, thus says Yahweh. That's Israel's God. Stands against the gods of Egypt. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Mark that. He said, you have enslaved my firstborn son. And if you don't let him go, your firstborn son will be taken. So Moses goes to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5 and shows him signs and wonders. And Pharaoh doesn't let the people go. And he says, if they have time to worship their God, then they're too idle. I'm going to make their work harder. So now they're supposed to make bricks without what? Straw. Make bricks without straw. So before they were bringing the straw to him to make bricks. Now it says, well, if you got time to worship your God, then you've got all the time in the world you need to go get your own straw and to make bricks. I keep the quota the same. And if you don't meet the quota, I beat the mess out of you. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. The people beaten, weighed down, burdened. 
discouraged. They lost hope. Moses finds himself in desperation and he says, Why, Lord? Have you ever asked that question? Why, Lord? He says, Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, things have gotten worse and not better. Why, Lord? And he said, Tell the people, I have heard their affliction. I will deliver them. But when Moses told them, it said they did not believe because they were discouraged. They were of heavy heart. Some of you are there now. Of heavy heart, struggling to believe all these things we've just said about the name of God. In your struggle. In their struggle. To believe. God wants you to notice whether they believed or not, he was still at work. Whether you see it or not, he's still at work. And God was delivering on his promise to deliver them. He is always not only a promise maker, but he is a promise keeper. No matter how you feel, no matter what kind of faith level you have, God is always at work to keep his promises for his people. He can be trusted. And so even when they have lost faith, he said, trust me. Look at what I'm about to do. And so Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 3, we see God speaking to Moses and he says, I am Yahweh. I am God, this covenant God. God is like a generic name, like human. So divine being is God. Human is like general person. But now he says, my name of my covenant relationship, my intimate relationship with Israel, it's Yahweh. I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. You might have heard this term, El Shaddai. It means God Almighty. He says, but my name, the Lord, didn't I make myself known to them? Haven't I shown myself to be the Lord all throughout Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life? I have proven my trustworthiness. So he says in Exodus 6, 6 to 8, Say therefore to the people, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arms, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into a land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. What are we supposed to see from this? The Lord made promises and he delivers on his promises. As a follower of Jesus, our hearts are drawn into this because our Savior was raised up. He was raised up to overcome the grave. Promise after promise that one will come who will die in our place and be raised on the third day so that we would have hope of new life. Promises made, promises kept. We're meant to rest. We're meant to trust. He is all of those things. He is Yahweh to us. Good, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
So when you read these things and he says, I will take you to be my people, I will be your God so that you will know my name, that I am the Lord. He wants you to apply that to every day. Our God is trustworthy. You are my people, he says, and I love you. Now, his name, his promises not only display his name, but his justice and his mercy display the beauty of his name. So if you notice there in Exodus 6, 6, it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arms and great acts of judgment. That's what we're getting ready to see. Exodus 7 through 10 are great acts of judgment. Actually, all the way to verse thir- chapter 13. Great acts of judgment against the rebellious people of Egypt. Why? Because it's been established, right? Pharaoh is not a good guy. He literally, in the Egyptian culture, was treated as God himself. The Babylonian, the Assyrian culture, they did not elevate their kings to being gods themselves, but Egypt did. The Pharaoh was a deity himself. He believed he was to be God, to be worshipped, to be praised. And what's interesting is at the very beginning of Exodus, it says that he was shrewd. It's the very same concept that's used to describe the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, who was shrewd and cunning and wise in his own eyes. The one who was saying to the people, be wise in your own eyes. God is just keeping things back from you. It is very clear that Pharaoh is meant to show his, is shown as his allegiance is with the devil. And we see it, don't we? As he spills the blood of the innocent, like Cain spilled the blood of Abel. We see it when he enslaved and beat the people of Israel, when he tried to kill the firstborn of Israel. And when he, and all of that didn't work, he threw the babies into the Nile to kill them as well. This was not only not a nice guy, this is Hitler-esque, and they have been all throughout history. And so... Pharaoh has been hardening his heart, declaring himself to be God. Chapter upon chapter of him participating in the works of the evil one. And we read in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 to 5, God saying this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. This is his justice. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You hear why? He's bringing great acts of judgment Justice on evil so that the Egyptians, the evildoers, would know his name, that he is the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them, and we read that God is a defender of his people. And what we watch is God does these great acts of judgment to show that he is a defender of the oppressed and he brings justice upon the evil. Now, this phrase has troubled people for years, 
when it is said, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. What is the hardening here in the scriptures? What is God meaning to communicate in this moment? Two clear truths are being communicated by this phrase. One, when God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, he is saying, I am in control of all things, even hearts. Nothing can thwart my purposes. I'm sovereign and I'm in control of all things. Past, present, and future, he knows what's going to happen and his purposes cannot be thwarted. This is the first truth. God is sovereign over all things. He can be trusted because his purposes will be fulfilled. But there's a second truth that is just as clear in the scriptures. That Pharaoh is being judged because Pharaoh's choices to run away from God and to try to be God himself. Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. Pharaoh is being judged justly for the evil that is being committed. The two truths, we are responsible for our actions. You reap what you sow, as Galatians says. And the narrative could not be clearer. That our God is in control of all things at all times. And not even human evil can thwart his purposes. So, what does God do? He sends ten plagues to bring justice against evil. To show himself as the one who fights for the oppressed. He delivers the enslaved. He hears the cry of those who are being mistreated. He draws near to them and he says, I will rescue you by judging the evil. We know that that is right. Have you ever been oppressed by one who is doing evil? You know that you want God to be your defender. And you want to be rescued. And so God sends these ten plagues. In the ten plagues, the first five, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Or it says, his heart becomes hard. The last five plagues, it says, and the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. What you have to see here is that God's hardening work is an intensifying, as one brother said, it's an accelerating even of what was already there in Pharaoh's heart. His evil choices. Him trying to force himself into the place of God. But as Spurgeon says, these two truths are like parallel lines, but they eventually converge at the throne of God. Fully responsible, fully in control. And the reason we can't reconcile them is because our judgment is not God's. But in God's eyes, these are not contradictory, but these are truths. And if they're both truths, then they're not contradictory. We just can't understand it. We have to say what the scriptures say. God in control of all things, we are responsible for our actions. And we'll be judged accordingly.
You know what this does in my heart? It actually floods my heart with faith. If my horrible choices could uproot God's purposes and promises, not one promise could you bank on. Not one. I would have zero confidence. I basically would become an atheist. Because if I can uproot God's purposes, then he can't deliver on his promises. It's left into my hands. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach the promises he makes are the promises he keeps. No matter what all mess has gotten in there, our God keeps his word. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And on the flip side, you know what it does in my heart? It makes me not want to harden my heart in sin. I rest in his sovereignty and I hate sin. I was talking to one man even today. He'd been working on an old barn. As he's working on that barn, the wood on that old barn, he says, you try to nail into that thing. That wood, that nail does not go into that old wood because it has gotten so hard. How does it get so hard, I ask? Time. Just takes time. And over time, it gets harder and harder and harder. This is meant to terrify us. Of treating sin as something small. Oh, it's no big deal. Instead, we should say, no, I don't want to harden my heart. And you know how you know your heart's not hardened? It's not that you are sinless. It's that when you sin, you softly run to the Lord and you say, oh God, forgive me. I believe that Jesus died in my place as the substitute. He has borne it all. And I need your help. I cannot do this alone. And you confess your sin. This is what these beautiful truths do. They bring a sense of peace, comfort. But God sends 10 plagues upon the people of Israel. I mean, upon the people of Egypt, caring for the people of Israel. The word plague in the scriptures has two words, sign or the 10 strikes. So the 10 signs or the ten strikes. Sign is like a wonder. It's meant to make you stand in awe of the sign maker, the wonder giver. Stand in awe that somebody could do this stuff. But the other word is it's a strike. It's a strike against, and I'm not talking about like bowling strikes. I'm talking about like hitting. It's a strike of judgment against evil. And so the ten plagues, these ten wonders, why are they given? So that Israel... And Egypt and even their gods would know God's name, that he is the Lord. And so what are the ten? The Nile River turns to blood. Frogs cover the land. Gnats come from the dust of the earth. Flies cover the land. Sickness comes and kills the livestock. Boils cover the people. Hail comes to destroy the crops. And what the hail did not destroy, the locusts come and finish off the job. Then darkness comes to where they could not see at all. 
And after all these calls by Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go. Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. He continued to say, I will not let the people go. And so God brings one final strike. The death of every firstborn human and animal. These are the ten plagues. A few things that you should notice at a very high level over these ten plagues. When God is creating in Genesis, there are ten words of creation. Now, when God is judging, there are ten signs of what one author calls decreation. The destruction that happens when sin is at play. This is the very thing that happens with Noah, right? What did he do? He wipes out everything and saves a remnant. Every one of these ten plagues can be shown to be undoing in some way the creation of Genesis. The blood filled the Nile with dead bodies of the innocent. It's meant to make you remember the crying of Abel, the blood of the innocent. It's not how it's supposed to be. The blood of Abel is screaming. There is a problem in the world. And so he took the very thing that was their life, the Nile River, and he made it a place of death, which is exactly what God said would happen if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Death would happen. The gnats. I'm not going in order. I'm just giving examples. The gnats, are, we are told, come from the dust of the ground. Well, the dust of the ground is where Adam was taken up, the first man. He was taken up from the dust of the ground, and it says that when he dies, he will return to what? The dust of the ground. And so now... It's basically when these gnats come up from the dust, death is coming to the Egyptians to cover them, to remind them of their mortality. And if they do not turn, they will die. They'll return to the dust that has just swallowed them up or come at them. It's meant to make them fear. Even the locusts, it says they are blown in by God's Wind, a strong wind. Do you know the word for wind is the same word for spirit? Ruach. God's spirit in creation is found hovering over to bring life in creation. Here, God's wind is bringing in locusts to provide destruction. God is judging with every one of these plagues the evil of Egypt to say, I am a defender of my people and I am just in all I do. But what's also remarkable is that God not only brings justice, but he brings mercy. So bizarre and amazing. It almost like boggles the mind. When the flies come, they cover the Egyptians, but they do not touch the Israelites. Try that. It's so bizarre. It's so funny to me. As you read this, Pharaoh had magicians and sorcerers. And they were trying their hat at some of these same plagues. So it says that when the blood came in the Nile River, it says that, oh, they could make blood happen too. And when the frogs came, it says, oh, and they could make more frogs happen too. Do you know what? 
Who cares if they could make them happen? The point is, could they take them away? No, they couldn't. They couldn't bring deliverance. Only our God could bring deliverance. And so what did God do when the sickness was on the livestock of the Egyptians? He protected the Israelites. And when darkness, this one is crazy. When darkness was all over the people of Egypt, light was all over the people of Israel. Seven times throughout these 10 plagues, we are told these plagues come so that they would know the name of our God, that they would know that I am Yahweh. And so, dear friends, these plagues were meant to cause the Egyptians to fear and the Israelites to trust that God could deliver them. Did he deliver them? You bet he did. It's called the Exodus. And he delivered them through his sacrificial salvation. This is where things get crazy, remarkably exciting. Our delivering God shows off his mercy in full display. Not only his promises, not only his justice, not only his mercy show off the beauty of his name, but his sacrificial salvation shows it off. How will they be delivered from the death of the firstborn? How will they escape the Egyptians? By the mercy of God. So, if you remember, Pharaoh tried to crush the firstborn by throwing them into the Nile River, by trying to kill the firstborn or the uh, children of Israel as they came out. Now God was showing who is really in control. He's basically saying, I will turn your evil back upon you, but for anyone. Here's mercy. Anyone who sacrifices an innocent lamb, blameless, and wipes the blood on the doorposts, I will, you know the word, pass over their sins and I will deliver them. Their firstborn will not be killed. This was called the Passover. They were supposed to go into their house. And it was inside the house where this sacrifice was to be made. So picture this. Out of all of their animals, they were to pick one out, then wait four days. After the four days, little Johnny Lamb, whatever they called him, he's running around. All of a sudden, he's the one they're going to sacrifice. They kill him. Sacrifice him inside the house. And then they take the blood and they wipe it on the doorpost. Why the door? It was the door right outside the Garden of Eden where Cain and Abel were found sacrificing. It was right outside the door for Noah's Ark where Noah was found sacrificing as praise and worship to God. It's right outside, right inside the door of the tabernacle and the temple where the presence of God is, where they were supposed to sacrifice. And here now, they're supposed to go into the house to sacrifice as a communal offering with the Lord. This sense of, this is God's presence. He's with me. I trust Him. The blood that was crying out, this is not how it's supposed to be. Now the innocent lamb, a substitute, in our place, 
provided by the infinite love of God. The substitute lamb. Does it ring a bell? These aren't just symbols, friends. We have heard these stories for so long. But what it was meant to do for the people of Israel was this was meant to be a ritual that they remembered every single year. When Jesus talks about his own death, he does it on Passover. To say, my death is this substitute in your place. The Lord's Supper that we're getting ready to take is meant to be this reminder to us that Jesus Christ, the perfect, innocent, spotless Lamb, God's firstborn, stood in the place of the sinful firstborn. That's us. And He was provided as a sacrifice for our sin. Because without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness to happen. Jesus says, I died in your place so that you could have communion with me. Not just so that you could not have consequences, but that you could have me. Friends, I tell you, one of the greatest struggles in the preparation of this time was to make sure that it wasn't mechanical and just that we were learning facts about how God dealt with Israel. His ambition was that when we saw this sacrifice, our hearts would erupt in our unworthiness to receive such a sacrifice and erupt in such deep thankfulness that Jesus is the substitute in my place. And not only just so that I would not experience consequences, but so that I could be with my God day in and day out and abide in his love. This is so intimately relational. It is not math. It is communion with a person. The sacrifice that is being offered is a sacrifice that communicates the love of God for us. That we don't have to be treated like the Egyptians. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who trusted in the blood would be forgiven. And what you read in Exodus 12 and 13 is almost like a little manual on how to do Passover over and over. Lamb was to be roasted over a fire. Anything not eaten was to be burned. The meat was to be eaten with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. So the Passover began a seven-day feast of the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread eaten every single day, all seven days. Sabbath on either end. And the Passover began it. The bitter herbs were supposed to remind you of the suffering, the bitter suffering that they experienced. Unleavened bread was meant to remind them of how quickly they had to leave. They couldn't let the dough rise. They had to go. Quick obedience. And they were to keep the Passover for generations. Why? Because as it says in Exodus 13, 8, you shall tell your sons and your daughters on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? We are communicating to each other, remember what Jesus has done for me. He saved me. He rescued me. 
I confess him. I love him. And I'm a part of his church together with you. That's what we're going to communicate here in just a minute. For all those who trust in Jesus, we are rehearsing his death and resurrection in our place. But right after the sacrifice is made, the blood on the doorpost, angel of death comes through, kills all the firstborn of animal and human of those who didn't have the blood on the doorpost. Pharaoh finally relents and says, get out of here. Go. And as they go, a very interesting phrase is used. God says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, this is Exodus 13. 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the Philistines, although that was near. That was the quickest route. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Instead, God led them around a longer way through the wilderness toward the Reed Sea, the Sea of Reeds. I was struck by this. He knows what we can handle. He knows what will push us to the brink and when we will tap out. And so what does he do? He protects us from that because he's a keeping God, which also means this. Whatever you're going through, it means God believes with his presence, in his love, You can face whatever you're facing. He will not give you more than you can handle in him. That's why he says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes, you can grin and bear it. You can do a lot of things on your own, but you cannot do it with joy and with peace and with sustained sense of life and hope and rest without the Lord. But I promise you this, whatever you're facing, God sovereign over all things has said, hey, if they were to go this way, they'd tap out. I'm taking them this way, even though it seems like the long way. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought this doesn't seem very efficient? It's his design because we are a broken people filled with sin and the long way If that's God's way, it's the best way because we are with him. And whatever you're facing, he says you can handle it because I am with you. That's what he has sought to prove. And so, man, the story is going to be hyper-warp at this point. Egypt says, I'm not going to let them go. They were good forced labor. So now they're standing, the Israelites are standing at the edge of the Red Sea. They're blocked in. And what they look up as at the back, of the back of the mountain, they see the Egyptians bearing down. And God comes before them in a presence of fire at night and a pillar of cloud. The same thing that had led them out is now gone in between the Egyptians and Israel. And they're standing there. And the presence of God in between the Egyptians and Israel. And on this side is water. And what happens is overnight, he tells Moses, put your staff in the water. Overnight, the winds blow the water apart. And by the time the morning happens, they're trucking along through the water. I never forget Tim Keller as he was saying, isn't it amazing 
Some people were strong of faith walking through the water. This is amazing. Look at the walls of water. And other people were like, oh my goodness, this is going to fall on us right now. I, I cannot stand. You know, it's just like some were filled with faith and others were crumbling in faith, but all of them got through. They all got through. God's name can be trusted. Whether your faith is a mustard seed, or whether your faith is as a mountain, they walked. But before they started walking, favorite verses in almost all of the Bible, Exodus 14, 13. What are you supposed to do when your enemies are coming at you and there's water in front of you? What would you do? You wouldn't think to do this. He says, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be still. What's your role? Do nothing. And watch me deliver you. Dear friends, I pray that you know the greatest thing you can do is sit in the presence of the Lord, trusting him to fight your battles. Does that mean you don't act? Of course it doesn't. But what's first thing is to trust that our God, he fights for his people. All you have to do is to trust. You be still. You can't change your spouse. You can't change your kids. You can't change yourself. You can't change your church. You can't change your neighbor. You can't change your coworker. You can't change your mom or your dad or your extended family. You cannot do it. So what should characterize the people of God? Stillness. And his presence. Calling out to the God who is over hearts. The God who can split seas. The God who brings salvation. And carried the people across to dry land. And brought right justice upon the enemies of the Israelites. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've provided your son as the sacrifice in our place. We thank you that he is our rock and our fortress. He is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It is your nature to want to forgive. It is your nature to pour out your mercy and your grace upon your people. And so, Father, I pray. When we're tempted to worry, I pray we would remember you have the future. When we're tempted to despair, I pray that we would remember you're one of grace. You can be trusted. If you can do all these seemingly impossible things, you are greater than the circumstance we face. I pray, Father, that right now you would lead our hearts to worship. And as we run into his presence and take the Lord's Supper together, I want you just to sit for a second and remember Jesus in your place. And spend time with him. If you need to confess your sin, confess your sin. If you need to confess his love, confess his love. But do not sit in condemnation. Run to him. Fear not. 
receive his love and forgiveness. And then we will take the Lord's Supper together.